You are Locked On Heat, your daily Miami Heat podcast. Part of the Locked On Podcast Network, your team every day. Hello, Heat Nation, and welcome to your daily Miami Heat podcast, part of the Locked On Podcast Network, the only podcast that breaks down every game, news item, rumor, and more. Thank you for subscribing on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, or in Himalaya. My name is David Ramil. Just some notes about the week with the Christmas holiday. Miami is playing three games this week, but that includes one on Monday, and then they're off again until Friday. So I'll still be putting out shows during the week, but I probably won't be putting them out daily, as a lot of you will be spending time with family or traveling and doing things of that sort. However you choose to celebrate the week or not, be safe in everything you do, enjoy your time as much as you can, and most of all, if you're traveling, make sure to listen to archived episodes of your favorite podcasts, including this one. In the meantime, the Heat are the gift that keeps on giving, fresh off their emotional win last Wednesday over the Philadelphia 76ers. Miami played host to the New York Knicks. It had all the makings of a trap game against a lesser opponent, but the Heat were dominant early and throughout most of the game, beating the Knicks 129-114 in a game that was never really all that close. Miami had to lead the entire game, as much as 34 points in fact, and let the reserves play almost the entire fourth quarter. Every starter played 30 minutes or less, including Jimmy Butler, who played just 28 minutes and attempted only three shots. A lot of people were debating whether or not Butler would be upset about that kind of lack of output, but let me tell you, and something I'll get into a little bit later, he was not upset at all. In fact, uh, he was downright jubilant, and that was something to see as I was at the game and covering it and had the opportunity to, to see Jimmy in that locker room. He was nothing but excited for him, his team, and the win. Uh, the game also marked the return of Goran Dragic, who was nothing short of fantastic in his first game back. He played 24 minutes, scored 18 points on 6 of 12 shooting, including 4 of 9 from 3-point range, and he also added 8 assists. He spoke after the game in a really loose, again, lighthearted locker room of being rusty, but everybody was just talking about how good he was and how much he helps everyone on the floor. Before the game, Eric Spolster talked about how excited the team and the coaches were to get Goran back, that Jimmy Butler himself had been particularly happy about the return, even going to see Dragic work out on Thursday before the Knicks game. If there's a takeaway from this one, other than the Knicks being pretty bad, it's that Dragic does so much as a potent scorer and playmaker off the bench. He helps the starters because they can play less minutes, and he takes the burden off of Jimmy, in particular of having to create so much offense. Along with the reserves, Goran does so much of creating a steadying presence that he helps everyone in their respective roles. Everybody understands exactly how to fit alongside him. He makes plays for others, whether it's somebody who doesn't get much playing time like Chris Silva or a guy like Kelly Olenek who's trying to find his form and get back to some of the consistency we saw earlier in the season. Goran just adds to everybody's game, and everybody was speaking about it. From Duncan Robinson to the reserves, as I said, they were so excited to have him back. Uh, and just overall, he's such a dangerous scoring threat that teams have to counter his shooting and his drives to the rim. And that makes things easier for whoever is out on the floor with him. And I talked with Goran after the game, and he was just so happy to be back. Let me tell you, folks, it was incredible. It was evident how hard it is for these guys and for Goran in particular to be away from the game. And the adrenaline was still pumping after his return. And he, he just he looked so excited, happy, almost like a kid on Christmas, uh, funnily enough. Either way... Um, just great to see him back in action. He looked really impressive, and uh, hopefully he can continue and uh, get a couple of days off during that holiday to continue staying healthy and be productive because he makes this team so much more dangerous and so much more dynamic. 
The other takeaway was something I was particularly interested in, which was how the Heat stays focused against losing teams. I actually asked Eric Spolstra about it pregame, and he was absolutely he was concerned about it as well, especially in the wake of last week's loss to the Memphis Grizzlies. He actually drew a comparison between the Grizzlies game and the Knicks one, saying both teams had been winning lately, and it's true. Both of them had won three of their last four. Uh, in both situations, they were coming off emotional wins. The Mavs' overtime win took place right before the Grizzlies game, and the Sixers' win just two days before the Knicks' contest. And he wanted the team to play their best basketball, most of all. Uh, that was the focus for this team. Uh, every game, obviously, but even against you know inferior, quote-unquote, inferior opponents. And they absolutely did that. And I also asked Myers Leonard about it, and he went as far as to say that the Grizzlies' loss, loss rather, was actually a positive. Uh, in the sense that it was a learning experience. And he said that the team met the next day after losing to Memphis, had a long film session to, quote, dial back a few things, and that they had to get back to their strengths. Uh, that as a disciplined team, you don't take any opponent lightly, even the teams that have losing records. And that certainly showed against the Knicks. It also showed against the 76ers. When they play to their strengths, they keyed in on the things that they do well, playing defense, making plays for others, finishing at the rim, things of that sort. And so the Knicks... Um, not a very good defensive team in particular. They've got some good, good scoring from Marcus Morris Sr. They have their rookie, R.J. Barrett, who's a decent shooter, although he did not look it against Miami. Uh, clearly, the Heat were looking to make the Knicks uncomfortable, take them out of whatever offense they do have. They were without longtime Heat player Wayne Ellington, who's still injured. But overall, Miami was just incredibly dominant, and it was just a good win overall. The team played really solid for almost 48 minutes, especially on the offensive end. They shot almost 56% from the field, 48% from three-point range, and seven players scored in double digits. Uh, everyone ate, and the locker room afterwards, like I said, was just downright excited and happy. Uh, Jimmy in particular was just... He just looked relieved. Uh, he was making jokes with everybody, kind of just um, flashing a shirt behind Goran Dragic as the media scrum was taking place there. He was barking at Myers Leonard because Myers had, quote-unquote, stolen a rebound off the rim from Jimmy. Uh, Derek Jones Jr. was making jokes. Even James Johnson, who isn't getting any playing time, was laughing, singing, and before quickly uh, exiting the locker room. So uh, he did not play, and he continues to be Withheld from action. Uh, Justice Winslow also did not play. Um, and that's uh, something that we'll get into. Well, I'll discuss it now anyway. About uh, in an upcoming game against Utah Jazz, he's already been listed as out. So he's going to miss, I believe, his ninth straight game due to a lingering back injury. And there seems to be some concerns, not just from fans that are kind of growing frustrated with Winslow's lack of playing time, but also the concern that he is injury prone and things of that sort. They're also seeing tea leaves where there might not be any uh, that Justice is being held out on purpose because he's being actually shopped around in a trade. Don't see that being the case, to be honest with you. I don't think Justice is being traded. Um, and that's not why he's being held out. I think he's just has a lingering health issue and they want to make sure just like the concussion that he comes back to full strength and more importantly the team keeps winning so there's no need to rush him back so I, I wouldn't read too much into it I don't think that there's anything related to a trade taking place there I don't think he's also injury prone I think he could come back if it was a playoff situation or th things of that sort you don't want to mess around with back injuries especially in the league and I'm not sure what it is I'm not sure if there's a an issue with his core or if there's something going on there that's not going to be fixed by surgery at some point back surgery is tricky especially uh and you don't want to endanger yourself or risk any kind of long-term injury but uh, we've seen great players we've seen all types of players actually just uh, be 
perennially impacted by back issues. I mean, Steve Nash was forced into retirement because of it. Anthony Hardaway had lingering problems. I mean, there's just on and on and on. Uh, Tracy McGrady. You don't want that to be uh, a problem throughout the most of your career. So I, I hope that it's just something that's correctable. I remember Victor Oladipo going through long-term injury issues and then going to DBC Fitness and working with uh, that kind of you know that kind of expertise where they can look at your body type and what's going wrong and, and use the right kind of mechanics to fix these problems. And hopefully he does that because I think he's still contri- capable of contributing at a high level. He can play defense, obviously. He can make plays. And that kind of depth really provides a lot of impact. And we saw it from Goran on his return. And I think while you're not getting the same kind of offensive production from Justice, he does provide something at a defensive level uh, versus hot quality opponents in the playoffs or even during these kind of you know regular season games and, and big high profile matchups you want somebody out there that's capable that's knows what to do and isn't going to be playing selfishly or throwing anybody off rhythm and that's what justice provides but anyway well the fun times last on monday night against the jazz i'll preview the upcoming game in the next two segments you're listening to locked on heat The original Casper mattress combines multiple supportive memory foams for a quality sleep surface with just the right amounts of both sink and bounce. Get $100 off towards select mattresses by visiting casper.com slash LockedNBA and using LockedNBA at checkout. Terms and conditions apply. If you can't visit Casper right now, don't worry about it. You can find this and all the other offers from Locked On Sponsors at LockedOnPodcast.com slash offers. Gobert or Donovan Mitchell? Who is Utah's X-Factor? Let's get into the preview of Monday's matchup versus the Jazz. Just some basic points about Utah, who will be traveling to Miami for their third game of a three-game road trip. Uh, That includes wins over Atlanta and a comeback win over the Charlotte Hornets, where they were down by double-digit points in the third quarter, so it's not like they're beating up world powerhouses here or anything like that, but they're playing fairly well. Um, the Miami Heat actually are the second best three-point shooting team in the NBA at 38.5%. The best team in the league, why? The Jazz at 38.7%. Uh, they're actually but just 21 attempts per game, so they don't shoot it a lot, but they're very efficient when they do. Uh, their best shooters are Bojan Bogdanovic, who just joined the team from the Indiana Pacers. Obviously, Heat fans should remember Bogdanovic when he was lighting things up with the Pacers. He was... Uh, not necessarily a random scrub heat killer. He always seemed like one of those players that was dangerous and could go off at any moment, either victimizing a Justice Winslow or a Josh Richardson in the past. So he's going to be a difficult matchup for the Heat. He shoots 45% on over seven attempts per game. So he's obviously very dangerous. They also get some pretty high percentage shooting from Royce O'Neal and George Nyang, uh, both of whom shoot over 40% on limited attempts. 60% of O'Neal's total shot attempts are from three-point range, so about three out of every five. Uh, so he shoots them very well also. He's a high-energy 3 and D guy that starts at the four spot, and like I said, he's pretty effective as a scorer. Uh, if the three-point shot isn't there, he gets to the rim, and he, can, he has enough length and athleticism where he can finish at the rim at a pretty high level. 
even guys that you don't expect to be good shooters like Donovan Mitchell and Emmanuel Mude, uh, Moudier, who's actually a free agent pickup from the Jazz, uh, they're both hitting uh, 35% from three-point range. And Joe Ingles, who's a dangerous shooter himself, is actually at around 37%. And he's actually struggling, but on any given night, he could light up a team from the perimeter. So uh, obviously a, a huge concern for Miami, although they do a mostly good job of guarding the three-point line, something that they've struggled with uh, in recent games. Not against the Knicks, obviously, but uh, against the Grizzlies, against the Sixers, even who were able to come back. Um, Miami has their work cut out for them and trying to limit this kind of three-point shooting. Um, Miami, uh, like Utah, both turned the ball over a lot. The Jazz are actually third most in the league of tur- at turnovers, just behind Miami at 16.5 per game. Uh, the Heat had been leading the league in turnovers, but re- some recent efficiency has brought them down to second. The Hawks are actually the most turnover-prone team in the league. Um, Bogdanovich, in particular, has a high dribble, and he's looking for a foul call on almost any drive, so he loses the ball when he's looking for that call. Um, Mitchell can also be a little inefficient. He makes some passes. He leaves his feet at times when he's making those passes because he's so good at using his quick first step and hoping that he can get past an an initial defender uh, to put up a mid-range shot or a pull-up jumper, things of that sort. But if the shot is being contested, he'll look to find a cutter or somebody else or just to dish the ball off and avoid a turnover. But he can force the pass anyway, which leads to a turnover. So that's why they're turnover prone, Uh, much like what we see from Jimmy Butler at a time when he's uh, diving along the baseline uh, and attacking the rim and trying to find somebody that's cutting. And if he doesn't, he'll lose, he'll leave his feet and force a bad pass. Um, that, that can happen at times with the Jazz as well. So that's definitely something to look out for is that they will turn the ball over a lot. And so will Miami. And so that should cancel each other out a lot. Um, the Jazz actually shoot a lot of free throws, about ninth most in the league. Gobert uh, at seven foot one, shoots the most right above Mitchell and Bogdanovich. So they use a lot of contact. They're they're pretty good defensively, and so uh, they're going to make contact with you. Gobert, with his length and size, is going to draw some fouls. He's a lot quicker than you'd think, actually. Something I'll get into into the next segment. Um, but Mitchell obviously draws contact. Bogdanovich sells contact, even if he doesn't draw it. Um, so they have some guys who can shoot the free throws uh, and, and look to shoot free throws as a big part of their offense. So uh, that's absolutely a concern for Miami. Defensively, they're very good, much like the Heat uh, and how they used to use Hassan Whiteside. They try to run you off the three-point line. They're seventh best at limiting three-point attempts at the game. So you're not going to get a lot of three-point attempts against Utah, despite the fact that Miami shoots them as well as they do, and they shoot as many as they do. Uh, and with Gobert, they obviously rack up a lot of blocks, too. So while you think he could be exploited uh, at his height and size in pick-and-roll situations, he's actually improved quite a bit and can guard ball handlers on the perimeter. You can't just hope to, to get a switch uh, where you're, you know Gobert is guarding, say, uh, Kendrick Nunn, or even Jimmy Butler, and hope that, that they're going to be able to get right past Gobert. He's... he's capable enough at moving his feet uh, in a way he was not when he was a younger player. And so he can limit uh, what people can do in pick and roll situations. So he's not as good at Bam as Bam Adebayo. He is, you know, obviously Bam is one of the best at switching onto ball handlers as a big, uh, but he's much better than Hassan ever was. So he's absolutely a concern there. They don't force a lot of turnovers defensively. They're third fewest in the league, but they do limit assists, the least in the league. And so for a team like Miami that is looking to pass off to cutters and things of that sort, that is actually a concern because they do such a good job of limiting those passes. They switch well, have active hands, 
and can afford a gamble on closeouts to throw you off all your passing rhythm because they have Gobert to clean up after them. They had problems earlier in the season with pace, especially because they were trying to incorporate Mike Conley into the lineup. He obviously acquired there via trade uh, in the offseason, but they look actually better of late with Joe Ingles back in the starting rotation. They don't have a lot of depth, however, and that's something I'll get into the next segment along with some more key points for a potential Heat win against the Jazz. You're listening to Locked on Heat. Remember to listen to and subscribe to new and archived episodes of Locked on Heat on Himalaya, as well as on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and Google Podcasts. If you're in iTunes, please leave a rating and review, especially if it's a good one, something that you people have been doing an excellent job with. I put the call out some days ago asking that uh, we get up to 200 reviews on iTunes. You've done a fantastic job. Last I checked, we were at 194, so uh, just a few days left in the year. Get out there and leave a review if you haven't already. You've been so supportive. You've said such great things about the content here, and I am so glad that all of you are listening and appreciating what we're trying to do at the Locked On Network and what I'm trying to do with this show in particular. So thank you so much for that. As I was getting to in the previous segment, the depth on the Utah Jazz, especially with Conley Hurt, is kind of weak. They get some occasional offense out of Moutier and Yang, uh, three-point shooting in particular from Yang, and some rebounding out of Ed Davis, who seems to always be in the right place at the right time for a board. He's also a good screener and things of that sort. Jeff Green is who he is, so he is not as much of a factor at this point in his career as he once was. And so Miami's depth, even without Justice Winslow and Dion Waiters, should be able to control these matchups. This is actually Miami's key strength as far as I'm concerned, not just because it's obviously a strength of theirs on any given night, but against the Jazz, um, their backups are so limited in what they can do. you either got a guy like Moutier who can be inefficient, or Nyang who's limited in every aspect of his offense other than from the perimeter. Ed Davis isn't going to put up any points. Jeff Green may not even play. And so Miami's depth between Goran Dragic and Tyler Hero and everybody else that comes off the bench, Kelly Olenek, who can have a big bounce back here without um, you know anybody limiting what he can do, that should be a potent source of offense for Miami. And so you could see a situation where they could get uh, a lot of their, their offense from this backup unit, as we've seen in the past, and that might be the key to a victory. Uh, I'm mostly concerned, as far as the starters are concerned, with Gobert. I think it's easy to kind of overlook him because I think he was somewhat limited in what he could do, but I think he's a much more improved player. Uh, I think there's still s- some lingering resentment or issues with him because he's European and so you kind of see him as weak or soft or things of that sort. This is not who Gobert is. Gobert is actually a very, very good player. Uh, Offensively, he might be a little limited. He does not have the touch around the basket that you'd expect. He does not have a shot in any way, but he's better. Actually, he does have good touch around the basket, mostly because of his length, and so he can finish at a very high level around the rim. Uh, And and I think even with Mitchell playing at an all-star level, Gobert might be their biggest X factor. I imagine that my Leonard would start off guarding guarding Rudy, and that's a problem because Gobert is actually a lot quicker than Leonard. Um, he uses a lot of slips-type screens where he makes the slightest contact, especially when Mitchell has the ball, and then he quickly dives to the rim for an easy look. And with his length, he's almost impossible to stop. He also does a good job of just shielding defenders when he's in the paint. So imagine, if you will, that 
the top of the key, Donovan Mitchell has the ball, and he gets another screen from another teammate, either Ingles or O'Neal or something like that. And because Mitchell does have such a good dribble, he's so quick and strong, he can get past that initial defender, and then whoever's guarding Gobert is just wiped out of the play completely, leaving Mitchell an easy look. If you look at the previous game against the Charlotte Hornets, they use that play a lot, and, and Mitchell's very good at recognizing it, and so is Gobert. They have good chemistry on the floor. Um, so... You know, depending on who that initial screener is, either Ingles or O'Neal, then it could be either that Bam Adebayo probably guarding O'Neal is being screened at the top of the play. That isn't as much of a problem because he can probably switch and pick up Mitchell with his speed. But if Duncan Robinson's out there trying to pick up Ingles uh, and then gets screened out there, that could be a problem because uh, he may not react quickly enough. And then that could lead to that play that I was just describing where Mitchell will get to the rim fairly easily. Um, the Jazz backcourt is a very high-scoring one, so you're probably looking at Kendrick Nunn picking up Donovan Mitchell, which is not a good matchup for the Heat, while Jimmy Butler tries to guard Bogdanovich and, most importantly, stay out of foul trouble. So that's those are going to be key matchups there for Miami on the defensive end, uh, not ones that I'm particularly looking forward to. I think Butler, in particular, obviously can hold his own against Bogdanovich. That's not much of a concern, although the foul trouble is. Uh, Bogdanovich is bigger. Um, he's stronger, not stronger than Butler, but he is strong in his own way, and he does look, again, for con- to sell contact in any way he gets it, and so that's an issue. Jimmy normally avoids the, the, the whistle against him, um, so we'll see how it happens, and again, since Miami is at home, that'll play in their favor, as it more often does, uh, but the Nunn-Mitchell matchup is, uh, well, that's not a good one for Miami, I think, because Mitchell's bigger, uh, Mitchell's stronger. Um, and uh, and he's quicker uh, than, than Kendrick Nunn, especially Nunn on the defensive end. So that's going to be a tough one to see. Uh, I'm curious to see how that happens. And and my other concern uh, with Miami defensively is that you're limiting what Bam can do. You're kind of minimizing what his impact is because he's going to be stuck on O'Neal uh, with Leonard uh, guarding Gobert. And O'Neal is, as I said earlier, mostly a shooter. So you have to respect him. But then Bam can't be free to pick up guys like Mitchell or Gobert when they attack the rim or get screens from an O'Neal. So that's going to be something of a concern for Miami is that if, if let's say, let's say Ingles sets a screen for Donovan Mitchell and, uh, you know, Bam's out there in the corner picking up Royce O'Neal, uh, who's going to pick up Mitchell when he gets to the rim, especially if, if Gobert is blocking off Leonard as he no, normally does? Um, that leaves a wide open lane for Mitchell to pick up a, a number of points there pretty easily without getting any kind of contact. If Leonard tries to fight over the Gobert screen because he is stronger than Rudy, um, then he might get into either foul trouble for shoving Gobert out of the way or being late because he's a little slower at picking up Mitchell and maybe slapping him on the arm as Mitchell gets to the rim. So these are all concerns. Again, this is a team that shoots a lot of free throws. They get a lot of contact because of these kinds of plays. They're smart. They're well coached by Quinn Snyder. Um, They're a good team, even though their record is struggling a little bit. Again, mostly as they were trying to incorporate Mike Conley earlier in the season. So it's a dangerous matchup. And Miami has to be careful with a team like this because there are a number of different factors. You don't think of Utah as being a potent offense, again, because they were struggling so often to incorporate Conley. But this is a well-coached team. They're efficient with what they do. And so they can put up a number of points. Their margin of victory is actually not particularly good. They're, they're I, don't, I can't recall exactly. I think I want to say 11th or 12th in the league um, because they only beat opponents by an average of 1.1 points per game. So they're barely eking past opponents. 
but it's because they they control the pace. They take take you out of your comfort zone offensively because they play defense at a pretty high level and they get just enough points to get past you. So they're not going to blow you out because they don't have that kind of potency. Again, even with their three-point shooting, they don't take a lot of attempts, but they're very efficient at it. So they just do what they do and they do it well. And so for Miami, the challenge is to try to limit them. And for Leonard in particular, trying to stick to Gobert, to keep him from being the kind of screener that he is and to pick up screen assists uh, for Kendrick Nunn to, to limit what Mitchell can do. So I, I wonder if they might switch. I can't see I can't see Nunn picking up Bogdanovich um, because that could be a bad matchup for him. Um, and then maybe having go uh, Jimmy Butler try to pick up Mitchell. That seems like an option, but, you know, obviously Eric Spolstra... Um, kind of likes having guys stick to what they do and, and not putting them in, in weird situations like that. And so with none because of his size, matches up well with, uh, or matches up best um, with Mitchell. But uh, it's still a dangerous matchup. I, I'm not one that's not one that I'm looking forward to, and I'm curious to see how it will be. But I'll be there covering the game, and uh, I will be recapping that game. So uh, just stay tuned Monday night, and hopefully you'll get to hear all about a Heat victory. But that's it for today. You can connect with me on Twitter using the hashtag AskLHeat or email me at LockedOnHeat at gmail.com. I'm David Ramil signing off and thanking you, as always, for your support. Yeah! Wrap it up,